You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we continue to walk through this book together. It's an honor to be up here teaching this morning. Uh, some people have asked, is it a little bit intimidating to get up here and teach about, about money? And, and, and did Rodney get, stick you with this passage? Um, I, w- I would come back and say, no, this is the one I wanted. The last couple weeks have been, have a little wine and slavery. So I am more than happy to get to open up, to get to open up uh, God's word where we are. I flipped through this, our, our uh, family devotional guide, and made sure I wasn't going to get one of those passages. And I said, I would like this one So be- before, we, before I came up. So we're going to read together. Uh, we're going to start with the very, the very last phrase of verse 2, and then read the passage. I'm going to ask that you stand as we read God's word together. And this is not the the introduction. This is not the, the part that we, that we get out of the way and then the sermon begins. There's nothing more important that will come out of my mouth this morning than the reading of the word of God to the people of God. So everything else is downhill after this. So that's why we stand, we focus in, and this is what the Lord says. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You can be seated. So is there a type of person that makes the best leader? Is there an evaluation that you can, that you can, that you can have, a personality assessment? an aptitude test, a spiritual gift inventory. And if you just come out with the right results, then, then you're qualified for leadership. Or maybe you take the Enneagram and you'll be a type three wing two or whatever the, those things are. Uh, I, my wife was, was listening to a podcast on the cults. And there was an episode on the Enneagram. So I thought that was funny. So I, if you're an Enneagram person, I just say that to mess with you. I'm not, I don't know enough about it to, to know, but it's like, oh, okay. So, so that, that's an interesting take on it. But is there a test that you can determine, should this person be a leader in the church? Because that's what our passage this morning is about, that the church tests 
It's leaders and teachers. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told Timothy to teach and urge these things. That the church should test its leaders to ensure that they have sound doctrine and that they live in contentment. So this morning, we're going to look at two tests of what a leader should look like. So church family, we're putting this right in your laps. This is what you are called to do. This is what we collectively are called to do. Test leaders and teachers. And the first test is the doctrine test. Doctrine, one of those words that we do use outside of church, but to me, I guess in my world, it becomes a churchy word. Doctrine, a set of beliefs, a received teaching. It can pop up in politics. It can pop up in a coaching methodology. It can pop up in different areas, but these are the things that you hold to. So as we look in verse 3, what are the things that we should hold to? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the with with the right doctrine, which the right doctrine will always agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the right doctrine will always have a teaching that accords, that fits in with godliness. So if we're going to figure out as a church, what do we stand on? What are our foundational beliefs, our core set of what we have received from the Lord? How do we know if it's good and right doctrine, good and right teaching? And the first thing that we will always see if it's from the Lord is that it agrees with the sound words of Jesus himself. Jesus is the centerpiece of all scripture and teaching. If I could get up here this morning and teach you about the way that we should think, the way that we should behave, the way that we should use our resources... And I could teach the same thing in a Jewish synagogue or in a public school character class, then we've missed the mark. It comes through Jesus. Now, some Bibles have the red letter edition where the words that of what Jesus said and that and yes, but it's not certain words in your Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and inspired by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always exalt Jesus and point to Jesus. So anything that the written word says will be in accord with the living word who took on flesh and walked among us. The word will always center on Jesus. But sometimes we want to hear from the Lord. Sometimes we think, Okay, I know what I, I know the Bible stuff. I know that, but I just would like for God to speak to me out loud. I just would want to hear what is true, what is right. I saw a meme recently that explained it in a joke, and it, I thought it was great. If someone wants to hear God speak out loud to you in an audible voice, then have a friend read the Bible out loud to you. That's that's how. We hear from the Lord. 
If you're going to have a right truth, a right doctrine, it's always going to center on Jesus. It'll never undermine marriage. It'll never condone murder. It'll never elevate happiness over faithfulness. Doctrine will always flow out of Jesus. It'll always agree with his sound words. Good and right doctrine also will always, every single time, accord peace with, blend together with godliness. Now, if I asked a hundred different people in here to define godliness, we could define it in a hundred different ways. It's one of those words that we all just kind of know what it means if you've been around church, but then what does it really mean? Maybe we don't all know what it means. And I'm not saying I have the perfect definition, but for this morning, this vague word that we throw around sometimes with our own definition. I'm going to suggest that godliness has three portions to it. What does it mean to live godliness in a godly way, a godlike way? You see the root there. We're supposed to live as if God was living in us the way that we think he would live. It's going to be faithfulness to God. It's going to be a loving kindness to others. It's going to be moral integrity within Think what, what, that sums up what is godly behavior, godly actions, godly attitude. We're faithful to him, loving kindness to others, and an integrity within ourselves. So if we stand on a truth, if we stand on a doctrine, it's never going to line up with, okay, promiscuity is fine. Okay, let's just go and have a partying lifestyle. Okay, it's, let's go cheat on our taxes. Okay, it's fine to ignore church gatherings and just do it on our own. Right doctrine is always going to flow into godly behavior. So when we look at what should right teaching look like, it centers on Jesus, it points to godliness, right behavior, and when we see a different doctrine, a different teaching, we should recognize it as that doesn't fit. That isn't what we should be standing on. Not, it shouldn't shock us like Oklahoma and Texas with SEC on their names all of a sudden. That's, that's shocking, but it, it would be deeper than that. I'm talking Coach K in a lighter shade of blue shocking. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't line up. We shouldn't... It, right doctrine flows out of Jesus. It fits with godly living. And for me, I have to be reminded of the godly living part because I like my to-do list. I like my action steps. I like to be able to study and get the right answer. And then, boom, I have it. So I read enough. I talk to the right people. I listen to the right podcast. I read more of my Bible. I read more of my Bible. And I should be able to get to the answer. But Paul warns Timothy to warn his church that right or different doctrine impacts the way a teacher or leader's life looks. As we look in verses 4 and 5, we see that moral behaviors, character issues, when we fall in those areas, it flows out of flawed doctrine. Get this, good doctrine, right belief can't stop you from sinning, but flawed, different doctrine can ramp up your sin a whole lot more. So what does it look like in, in the life of someone 
who is building their foundation on a different doctrine, personal sinfulness. That we, our sin, doing things my way instead of God's way, doing things as if the world revolves around me, as if I know all things, if I'm the source, the source of goodness and wisdom, that's the way my life starts to look. Puffed up with conceit. Kurt helped me with this. The word here with puffed up with conceit is the same word that we get typhoon from. That's the underlying Greek word. So this blustering windstorm of being inflated up with how great we are. Understanding nothing. Depraved, twisted of mind, deprived of truth. So when we start building on this wrong foundation, it looks like that person that jumps to mind in your head, that incompetent person who doesn't even know that they're a wreck, that all-too-common blend of arrogance and incompetence that just, it's, there's nothing like it when the person that, that has no clue, totally deprived of truth, understands nothing, is the most puffed-up person in the room. That's the way that we look, that our behavior starts to, to come together in when we build on the wrong foundation, when we don't have a doctrine that points to Jesus. And that doesn't just stick with us, because we might think, hey, um, I don't, don't want to be a teacher, don't want to be a leader. If I'm a little bit off or a little bit inaccurate, a little bit imprecise, no big deal, but your error and your sinfulness are never contained to you. My error and my sinfulness are never contained to me. When we get misaligned, when we start teaching the wrong thing, it creates corporate divisiveness. When we gather together, it's a wedge, a division that pops up against the unity of the church. See, when we, when we start to teach our way instead of, instead of the foundational way that's rooted in Christ, what happens in our spirit, what happens in our minds is this craving for controversy and a, and a willingness and a desire to quarrel, to fight about words. I think we know, even when we won't admit it to ourselves, deep down in our soul that we're off. And just like Adam and Eve grasped for fig leaves in the blame game, we seek to pull others into alignment with my error to make myself feel better. And as I do that based on the wrong, the wrong foundation, I'm always going to be fighting to get other people to agree with me so that I don't have to feel so bad about myself, so that that nagging doubt, that hollowness, I don't have to deal with it because I surround myself and have bullied and pushed other people in my direction. A different doctrine produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction. It's like that new pair of shoes that doesn't fit right, and there's a piece of sand in the bottom. And it's just so, you're, the, 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 that constant friction with you, every step you take, the sand's not right, it rubs on the back of your, your heel, and that's what it is in the body of Christ. When we sit back and we say, ah, he didn't really mean that, no big deal, it allows that constant irritant that's going to divide. So, so wrong doctrine, it affects my life. It affects the people around me. But at the end of verse 5, this is, this is haunting. That when we get misaligned, we get puffed up and deceived, and we go down this path of not, not teaching the, on the foundation of what Christ has laid, 
we begin to imagine that godliness, being at peace with God, being faithful to God, a loving kindness to others, and living the right way, personal integrity, that godliness is a means of gain. We actually start to think, to deceive ourselves, that if we pursue godliness, that we do that as if it can be weaponized or as if it can be a manipulation tool or as if we can control other people with our own perceived godliness. As I've mentored younger pastors, sometimes I've seen someone that decides they're, they're called to, to be in the church and they're going to use godliness looking the right way and, and a spiritual sounding calling to avoid a certain kind of job that they don't like. Or perhaps it's coming to church and using it as a networking pool to leverage business connections and customers because you can slap a fish on your, on your business card and use the body of Christ for personal gain. Or, you know, I might not be the youth pastor anymore, but I was for a really long time, that sometimes maybe you behave a certain way to influence your parents and your heart's far from that thing, but if you just do that and look the right part, then you'll get freedom, you'll get a reward, and you weaponize, manipulate with godliness when our foundation gets off. So even aside from the wrong teaching, church, this kind of behavior is completely unfit for a leader or a teacher. Test your teachers and leaders for doctrine because it's about a lot more than just words and right thinking. But for me, still, even with the doctrine test, having those implications, it's still something that I feel like, hey, that's, that's a little bit easier for me. I'm a math person. Like, you, have, you, you can study it. You can get it right. You can get it precise. But this next test that begins in verse 6, it's like we've moved from math to poetry analysis, and I have totally gotten uncomfortable the emotion and heart test, the motivation test, the things that you can't just quite quantify. You can't nail it down with the A, B, C, you should do this and then that. A contentment test. Whereas we think, we, de- we deceive ourselves, we imagine that we can use godliness for gain, but godliness with contentment actually is great gain. What is being content? Being satisfied. It's enough. So if I can live in godliness, right with God, loving kindness to others, integrity within myself, living the way I think God would live, living the way that flows out of his character and what he said, That kind of contentment is where great gain comes. There's no thing that can fill the hole that this creates. 
if this type of godliness with contentment isn't enough, nothing ever will be. There's nothing you can get, nothing you can do. There's no thing that can fill this type of contentment. It's fleeting. You'll chase after it. It won't last because, according to verse 7, all possessions, all things, everything we can have is temporary. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's like running. When we, when we live our life to get stuff out of it, we live our life to get the, the financial reward, the power reward, whatever it is, when we live that way, it's like there's, we run a race, but there's no prize at the finish line. It's like we work our job hard all day long, but there's never anything at the bank account when we're done. We only have access to it while we're at work. There's no, there's no thing that we get at the end. If you've been around Rodney much in the last few months, or I guess before I was here, nine, nine years, probably reason it then too. He says often, there's only three things of eternal value. Rodney, I put you on the spot. Since you're here, it's nice to have you, nice to have you here when I'm preaching. It's great. It makes a little bit of pressure on. But <laughs> three things of eternal value. What are they, Rodney? God, the word of God, and the souls of people. If you didn't hear him, God, the word of God, and the souls of people. That's the only things that have eternal value. So if we're chasing after things that, have, that are like a vapor, like sand between our fingers, we're never going to have contentment. We're just always going to be grasping. Because they're temporary, but also because, according to verse 8, it's enough to have our basic needs met. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we'll be content. The point of life is to use our lives for the Lord. If he's given you what you need to live in that way, that's why we're here. When we go beyond that and think, but I need this too, and this, and, and, we think about drugs being an addiction. We talk about pornography being an addiction. But our stuff is an addiction. The more we have, the more we need. Sucked in more and more. And the finish line keeps changing and changing. And it's like the song in The Greatest Showman. It's never enough. I'm not going to sing it. Some of you can do that. It's in your heads now. But we are just like P.T. Barnum. You can have the whole world laid out in front of us. And it won't be enough. Because godliness with contentment is where great gain comes from. Money and the stuff that money can buy is creeping around the edges. Or right there in the middle. And godliness with contentment is great gain. Because there is, an, there is an innate danger to wealth and money. Not saying that wealth and money are bad. Not saying that having riches is sinful. But 
as we look at verses 9 and 10, I think we see clearly that there is an innate danger that comes with wealth and money because they change our orbit. They pull us from the orbit of godly contentment into something different. For those who desire to be rich, the word there is a continuous, continuous, passionate grasping for it. For those who have a love of money, like Tolkien's dwarf sitting on a pile of dragon treasure and it's just consuming them so they want more and more. These heart motives lead to falling into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. When we start to aim at money, when it starts to be our all-consuming, I just need more stuff to feel safe. I just need more stuff to feel like I can then serve God. When our hearts have that kind of soil, it gives roots to all kinds of evil. All different kinds of weeds pop up in that soil of our heart. Not that the soil is wrong, but it all of a sudden gives opening for these weeds to pop up. I found this new weed in my yard this year. It's got it's popping up, popped up all over my patio, so it's it's driving me crazy. And they're like quarter size, and they're hard, and they're covered in thorns, and they start they start to grow up within like five days in this little bush thing growing up in my patio. It's painful and it's messy. It gives root to all kinds of evil when our heart is captivated in money. As we pursue it, we're want, it allows people to wander from faith and to pierce themselves with many pangs. It's like the old cartoon gag. I can picture Wiley e. Coyote digging a pit, filling the bottom with spikes and a couple cactuses and different things, and then he gets the acme crate, and he covers over with a perfect reproduction of the road. He's trying to get Roadrunner to, to run over it and then fall plunging into this, this pit, plunging headlong into it. But we're not just when we when our hearts get captivated we're not just happening to fall into it but now that i've gotten my nerd analogies going we'll continue with them strong like Gollum jumping head first into a fiery volcano to catch his golden ring and then falling and being burned up alive as he rubs it and says yeah that's that's it's mine i got it that's what it does to us we plunge headlong into ruin knowing it's ruin as long as we get it so, what does, so as we look at the contentment test, why is it so important that our leaders, our teachers, have a godly contentment? Because if these other desires are pulling here, it's easy for other things to slip in. It's easy to all of a sudden subtly be misaligned. So I think you see a pattern. I think we see a pattern with these two tests that when you get the love of money, this, this thing that I, I've got to have more of it, I need more of it to be, to be safe, I need more of it for my family, I need, I, and I need, I need, I need, then the love of money leads to a lack of contentment with what we have. And then when we have a lack of contentment, we start to change our behavior and compromise godliness to chase after those things. And then once I compromise my godliness, once I compromise my behavior and start to feel guilty about it, the next thing I do is compromise my doctrine. 
because I don't want to deal with what's actually happening, so then I change my beliefs. So it doesn't just work that way for money, but when we elevate something into that love position, you see this slippery slope. I want this more. I have to have this. So then I become discontent that I don't have it. So then I start to change my behavior to make sure I do have it. And then I know I shouldn't live that way, but I can't deal with the guilt. So then I just toss out the doctrine. The slippery slope that plays out over and over in the mainline denominations for the American church. Compromise here, compromise here, compromise here. And then all of a sudden, this is just a book full of errors and not the inerrant, perfect word of the Lord. It happens with us with family members who we see and we grieved that they chase after something in life that reveals their hearts are far from God. But instead of dealing with the pain of it, we change our definition of marriage or we change our belief that Jesus is the only way. Or we see it in this popular trend of ex-evangelicals, people who walk away from their faith and say, hey, I, we, they look like they've grown up in church. They've looked like they've been a Christian for, for, gener- for, for, for decades. And all of a sudden they decide, nah, that wasn't me. It's because usually... They got hooked on a personal sin or lust. And then they decided they had to have that. So they lacked contentment. They compromised their godliness and then they compromised their doctrine. And then they end up saying all church and none of the God stuff is real. But godliness with contentment is a wedge that blocks the slippery slope. But right doctrine is a wedge that helps us from sliding down the slippery slope. So what? This is a concept, but what do we do with it? How do we live this out? Not just as a concept that I've learned, not just as a thing that, that I know I should believe, but how do I put it into action? How do I become a doer of the word? So what does it matter for me as I go to lunch today? as I go to work tomorrow. I know this has been about testing our leaders, testing our teachers, but the Lord holds leaders to a higher standard. That's true, but not a different standard. If a moral or character trait should apply to a pastor or a leader, should also apply to all Christians. If a moral or character trait should apply to a pastor, an elder, a leader, a teacher, they're a model of the way we should all be living. So I ask us two questions as we conclude. Uh, we We can apply God's word in lots of ways. It has one meaning, but many applications. So I'm just suggesting some applications that we can take from the text that we've read. And I ask us this morning, Personalize it. Ask yourself, do I have sound doctrine? Maybe there's hard conversations in hard places that you've felt like you've lost an argument or you felt like you didn't even speak up at all because we don't know the basics. Maybe we jump to financial or political solutions because we're not confident in a biblical doctrine solution. Maybe we don't share our faith at all because we don't even know the gospel itself enough 
to share it in a few minutes. Maybe some of us in here are trying to make a decision right now, but feel lost and adrift because there's no doctrine foundation and you're just not sure what God's will is even would be. Where do you start? Where do we start? We start with getting in the word. There's no substitute for just reading the Bible because all good and not different doctrine flows out and will be in accord with this. So if you want to know what we should believe, there's no substitute for getting in the word, being in the Bible, reading it every day, not as a checklist, but because this is the foundation for my life and I don't want to jump headlong into a pit full of sharp things that's going to pierce myself on it. How do I know what the guide map is? How do I know how to align? Read the word. But more than that, it's not just a personal thing with you and Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, but connect to a small group Bible study. Life journey groups matter. Plugging into a college home group, it matters. You need other people studying God's word with you, helping you to see it rightly, to see it accurately, to see the truth. Don't just go and reinvent the wheel yourself, but be committed to that community of reading God's word together. Also, draw on the wisdom of what other mature believers have written about God's word. We don't have to reinvent the wheel ourselves. There's other things that don't stand in for God's word, but if you want to think of what, what do I think about this? How can I help guide my thoughts? There's great resources. That, you know, I'm going to give you a couple of them just progressively more complex, but the Baptist faith and message, this is a little document. It's online for free. What do we believe about salvation? The scriptures. And it backs it up with scripture, 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 scripture. If you want a starting place, start with the Baptist faith and message 2000. You want a little bit more? This, I've had this book for 20 years. Before I, was a, before I had an office, it was in my office. Uh, J.I. Packer's Concise Theology. What does the term mean? Like, let me flip to salvation. Just a little two-page summary with scripture, 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 scripture. What is it? What is it? What is mission? What does it mean to be on mission? Two pages. Scripture, 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 scripture. A handbook. There's things that we, can, that we want to get in your hands that can help you know what the right beliefs are. Uh, stealing stealing uh, some of Pastor Rodney's thunder a little bit, but after Every Man a Warrior, one of the things, I've loved this resource for years, but John MacArthur's Fundamentals of the Faith. It's a multi-week Bible study on doctrine where you spend every week where you just go through and learn a doctrine, God's character and his attributes. And you spend a week just going through, studying God's word on that specific thing. Or there's things like a big systematic theology book where you have things where it helps you sort the scriptures together, make sense of them. This one's Danny Aiken's Theology for the Church. There's resources that you don't have to just hope you're on track. You be in God's word, in community, reading good things, and then go back to God's word again. That's how our doctrine is right. The next question I want to ask as we wrap up is apply it to ourselves. It's not just that we would have the right heads, the right thoughts, the right, the right beliefs, but that our hearts would be there. So ask yourself, am I content? I think as Rodney read at the beginning of the service, that, that thing, I can, do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
That's the only way we can get to be content. Most of us have been in the moment of thinking, well, that's great. I, can be, I could be content with godliness if I just had this need met or just had this cared for. If I just had, if I just had this, if I just was one of those people, then, then, I could, then I could have contentment. But I think whenever in the Bible we see a rich person addressed, when we look at the history of all billions and billions of people who have lived in all places and all time, if you're able to hear this sermon right now, in the history of humans, you are in the top 1% of the top 1% of the richest people who have ever set foot on planet Earth. So whenever the Bible talks about wealth and riches, you and I, no matter what circumstance we have going on, are always going to have this pull into this orbit of struggling with stuff, with struggling, with, with wanting a little bit more. And there's some of us that came in here decision, that came in here this morning working on a decision in your life and you're going to make it solely based on money. Creating upheaval for yourself and your family because you want to get more without even thinking about why. Because it's just what we do. So how do we cultivate being satisfied in godliness? I think one way to do it is to remind ourselves that we have to be open-handed and everything comes from him. So are we giving to the Lord? Are we giving with regularity? We have, are we prying our grasping fingers? I'm talking here, grasping fingers off of my resources, my precious, and, letting, and giving it to the Lord. And this act of trust and obedience, it changes our hearts. Because we're acknowledging that I'll never have enough. Another way is to reach out in mission work to other people who are different than you. To going across geographical spaces, across economic status, to go see the way other people live, to be a church on mission, not just to do relief work, but to share the gospel in those places. There's something amazing about going that then lets us come back and have a much more content heart. I don't think going is for the sake of ourselves, but it's a really phenomenal byproduct. Maybe it's even connecting and reaching out across generations, where as we come together as a church, it's easier to have contentment with where we are when you know the person who's different than you, who you're worshiping with. That's why we're, we're t- I'm talking about pray for me and pray for me and pray for me so much. We want to match every student with three adults of three different generations so that you get to know them and they get to know you. Where does contentment come from? It's by being on mission together. So the last Sunday in, April, in, in August, we're going to have a night where we, we match people up and we come in here and we, and we talk about being a ch- an intergenerational church that's, that's being stretched together. So sign up. Today is the last day. We need you adults. We, we, we don't want to come to any of these students and say, I'm sorry, we didn't have enough adults in your church that's willing to pray for you. All you need to do is give us your name and we're, we're going to give you their name and you just pray for them. That's it. doesn't matter if you're watching this online and homebound. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're thinking I'm already super busy, I travel too much. It's one name on your prayer list we, to, to be pulled out of our comfort zone. That's where we get contentment. But even more than what we do, how do we get contentment? So go back to the gospel itself. 
you and I already have been offered God's greatest treasure. God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son, Jesus, to live a human life, to experience humanity in every sense. Yet he was without sin, and he died an excruciating, humiliating death on the cross. If that's what God has already given us, then how do we possibly think he's going to hold out on us after that? Contentment comes. Contentment and godliness comes from a sure foundation on Christ. So as our, as our music team comes back up to lead us in the last song, remind us that doctrine and behavior mean nothing without Christ in your place. We can believe all the right things. That's what the demons do. We can behave all the right ways. That's what the Pharisees did. But if we're not standing on the completed work of Jesus and operating in him and by him and through him and putting our trust, our hope, our faith in him and not in ourselves, what are we doing? We're wasting our time and we are to be pitied. Contentment is fleeting. It's a carrot being dangled on a stick. I never thought that illustration. I, don't, I wouldn't chase a carrot. Maybe a horse would. Maybe like a piece of a Snickers bar dangling on a stick. If we're chasing contentment without Christ's completed work as the foundation, we're not going to just get there. We need his help to do it. Because we can only be content in godliness when we're secure in Christ. And he's enough. So if you're in here this morning and it's the church thing, the behavior thing, the routine thing, the I'm here with a friend or family thing, none of what I said, I can't pass these tests. You can't pass these tests. But for Christ in us. So if you don't know what that means to have Christ in you, to be a follower of Jesus, to be trusting in his death on the cross, then talk to one of our pastors after the service. Don't leave this building without getting that nailed down. We're available. Rodney will be right there. I'll be right here. We have other pastors all over the room. But now as we move into this song, we respond whenever we hear God's word preached. It's not about a place of coming forward. It's not about praying with a certain person. But we've heard the word of the Lord lifted up and we all are faced with the response of what do we do with it. So maybe it's standing at your seat and worshiping, singing the words that you don't have, I surrender all, singing at the top of your lungs. Maybe it's sitting quietly where you are and just doing business with the Lord. Maybe you need to come up front and, and pray and be by yourself and and have an alone time with God if that's something that's meaningful for you. We don't, I'm not going to tell you how you have to respond, but each one of us will respond with yes or with no. So now, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And we come and we say that we, we need to be like the man who came up to you and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I want to believe, 
the right things. I want to I want to know who you really are and who I really am, but help me to help me to be disciplined to be in your word, to grow in knowledge of you. God, I want to be content, but oh, it's hard. Supernaturally created me a heart of contentment that only comes by your spirit. Father, however it is that you want to work in us and through us. We don't want to just be better people. We want to love you more, trust you more, look more like Jesus so other people see Jesus in us. So use these next moments however you see fit. It's in Jesus' name we pray.